Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Of all the things we don't understand about COVID-19, how it affects children and why it affects them the way it does is at the top of the list. While we've heard a lot about COVID-19 in older adults, there's still a lot of confusion and misinformation out there about what role kids play in community spread of the virus and how they're affected by the virus itself. That's in part because there's not a lot of strong science out there yet. In the meantime, parents are left to wonder about reports of severe cases and strange symptoms such as those COVID toes you've been hearing about. Today on The Dose, we're going to try and separate some of the facts from fiction. We're asking, what do we really know about kids and COVID-19? Joining me to answer this question is Dr. Sean Morris, clinician, scientist and physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. He's also a principal investigator at SickKids Centre for Global Child Health and a professor of pediatrics and public health at the University of Toronto. He's currently researching underlying medical conditions of children with COVID-19 that may increase the risk for more serious disease through a national survey of pediatricians. Hi, Dr. Sean Morris. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, Brian. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We have heard so much about this disease and its severe impact on older people, not near as much about the impact on younger people. Why hasn't there been more information out there about kids and COVID-19? So it's a very good question. So number one, we're fortunate that the epidemiology in children seems quite distinct from that in adults. I think it's also a reflection of how we test. Because of limitations in the ability to test, testing has really been directed mainly at either people who are more seriously ill or people who have positions as frontline healthcare workers or other first-line responders. So if you don't test, you're not going to know. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, I think that that is one of the gaps in data. So we simply don't have a large number of children who have confirmed cases from whom we can infer about the full spectrum of illness. What do we know at the present time about how kids spread COVID-19 to others? So the mode of transmission between children and others is identical to how it is transmitted in other populations. But it does seem from emerging data that perhaps it's less common for children, particularly young children, to transmit to others than we may have thought. And, and is that in comparison to other respiratory diseases like, like uh, the influenza or RSV, respiratory syncytial virus? Exactly. So, I mean, when SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, first emerged, a lot of the original assumptions that we made before we had data was that it would behave similarly to other significant respiratory viral infections. And I think that you named the two most important. Both of those conditions have a peak in children, an epidemiologic peak in children, which means that children are very commonly infected And young children in particular also have more serious disease than do older children or otherwise healthy adults. 
So we thought that we would probably see a similar pattern with COVID-19, but it just hasn't turned out that way. So many of us are worried about grandparents and older adults catching COVID-19 from kids with no symptoms or perhaps very mild symptoms. How valid is that concern? So I think it's a valid concern in that you're highlighting parts of the population that are at higher risk for more serious disease should they be infected. The data that is emerging, however, seems to suggest that children are less likely to transmit COVID-19 both to other children and to adults. So while I do think it's a concern, particularly if you live in a household where there are at-risk people, so for example, an elderly person or a person with underlying chronic heart or lung disease, I do think that you need to be careful if there is a symptomatic child um, to keep physical isolation between the the at-risk person and the child, probably it's not a particularly high-risk situation. And I appreciate, you know, what people are hanging on your every word, and, and I'm sure you're thinking the parents are hanging on your every word, but let's reiterate that the science is only emerging, and the picture will be very clear later on in retrospect when we look back on this infection. Isn't that true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's always difficult in the midst of a new emerging infection to make recommendations. And I think that you've seen that with, with even Canada's public health response, how things have changed as new information, new ideas, new, new science emerges. You know, in the interest of flattening the curve, as you know, schools have been shut down. Based on what you've been saying, how much of an impact has that had, do you think, on reducing the spread of COVID-19? I know it's a dangerous question to ask. <laughs> Maybe it's a dangerous question, but I think it's a very good question. And, and I think the, the honest answer is we don't really know. I, I think that when originally the plans were made to essentially lock down all parts of society, including schools, it made a lot of sense based on what we understood at the time and the inferences that we made from the other common respiratory viruses like influenza and RSV, where we do know that children are an important driver of spread both within the pediatric population and within the population in general. So there was a study, um, it's actually not published in the peer review literature yet, but was released um, in the pre-peer review online format from Australia just a couple of days ago. So this was in the news and the, the message um, that was being given was that, at least in that Australian setting, transmission within the school from children, either to other children or to adults, seemed very rare. It's not clear yet how important closing schools is. I think, obviously, there is a huge trade-off in terms of children's education um, and their ability to essentially just be normal children would be around their friends, play with their friends, all of the ramifications to parents for having children at home. So it's a really important issue. And yet, this is what parents want to know about. They want to know when schools are going to reopen. We know that Quebec is looking at doing that shortly, you know, based on the growing belief that kids aren't transmitting COVID-19 compared to, say, the flu. Is it less risky to reopen schools than the experts believed? I mean, my personal opinion is it's probably less risky than we originally believed, but I don't think it's zero risk. So I I definitely think that 
I mean, anytime you take human beings and you allow them to congregate and be close together, you will increase the risk of transmission. And I think the magnitude of the risk that we will assume by opening schools is still not well defined. There really isn't good data yet. You know, there are a few data points, some of which have not been essentially fully scientifically vetted. So I think there's a lot of unknowns still. As a scientist with a great interest in this subject, what will you be looking for uh, in, in the data uh, as it comes out, as schools reopen, that that might give you pause for concern or or reassurance that it was the right thing to do? Well, number one, I think we need to test, right? We need to be able to understand who is infected. I would be concerned if we start seeing an increase in the percentage of young people who are testing positive. Number two, I think we also need to think about the adults who are making these schools run. So the teachers, the administrative staff, the janitors, everybody. If we started seeing transmission to adults within the school system, I think that would also be a reason for concern. Essentially, what we need to do is we need to monitor, look for symptomatic people, test, and try to generate data to understand what's going on. For kids that may have COVID-19, what are some of the symptoms that we see and, and that parents can look out for? So overall, COVID-19 in children is seemingly a less serious illness than it is in adults. If a child is symptomatic, the most common things tend to be fever, cough, um, and perhaps just that the child is, is feeling unwell or, or myalgias. Asymptomatic infection in children also seems to happen, um, and probably more commonly than it happens in adults or the elderly. But in general, COVID-19 seems to be a relatively mild disease in children. So what are some of the most serious symptoms that can occur in some children? So very rarely we do uh, see the more serious inflammatory response that has been seen also in adults. Uh, you've probably seen that in the, in the media in the last few days, there have been reports of a, of a multi-system inflammatory condition that was originally reported in the United Kingdom and now has been reported as well in other countries, including the United States, that seems to follow, at least very rarely, COVID-19 infection. And this is a, a syndrome where the immune system essentially becomes dysregulated and hyperactive and has difficulty shutting off. So it's been described as being similar to something called Kawasaki disease, which is another well-known inflammatory condition of, of children. So this is very rare, um, but it does seem like if it happens, it could be fairly severe. So in general, what do we know at this point about why some kids might get sicker than others? Excellent question, and we don't know the answer to that. In fact, I'm not sure that we know the answer to that outside of the pediatric population as well. So in adults, there are some very well-described high-risk groups, so in particular adults with obesity or hypertension, but there are also seemingly completely well adults who become very sick with COVID-19 as well. So in children, we have even less data and we really don't know yet either what are the underlying comorbidities or medical risk factors that may predispose to more serious disease, nor do we understand why somebody's immune system may respond differently to this particular virus one person compared to another, but these are all areas of active research. Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q 
with Tom Power, where we talked to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are, wherever you get your podcasts. You've already mentioned that we haven't been doing that much testing of of children with COVID-19. Do we have any idea uh, just how many kids have been infected with COVID-19 in this country? So overall in Canada, about 5% of all of the people who have tested positive for COVID-19 have been 19 years of age or younger. So about 1,240 under the age of 19. And that's microbiologically confirmed as of April 26. And again, there are all the caveats about who's actually being tested. But certainly it seems that young people are disproportionately not testing positive for COVID-19. Any idea why that is? Well, I think there probably is something to the fact that surprisingly to us, that younger people are less likely to acquire the infection. And I also do think part of it is a function of who is actually being tested. But it does seem like there is probably something real to the suggestion in the data that children are less commonly infected. We were hearing there for a while, and I think we still are to some extent, about false negative tests in adults. Is there an issue of false negative tests when you test children for COVID-19? We do think that there are times when somebody may be infected. So in general, what we do, if if our suspicion is very high that a patient is infected, we'll repeat the test. We'll usually wait 24 or 48 hours and repeat the test again. As I promised in my introduction, we have to talk about COVID toes. We've been hearing a lot about, about that and some other complications. The most recent have been COVID toes. What are they and, and how might they relate to COVID-19? COVID toes seem to be a phenomenon that happens in a small subset of children. It doesn't seem to happen with the acute illness. So sometimes it can develop days after somebody was infected. And it almost looks like frostbite. It's not always on the toes. Sometimes it can be on the hands. Um, it doesn't seem like it's harmful. There have been now a few publications about Uh, COVID toes, both from Italy, China, and other countries. Sometimes it seems they may be associated with a little bit of an itch. Sometimes it may be associated with a little bit of discomfort. Often it's completely painless, and it doesn't seem like there's any long-term complications or problems. It eventually just goes away on its own. What causes it is another really good question, and and I think the honest answer is so far, we don't know. Um, I think with COVID-19, we are seeing more evidence of other sorts of vascular complications or vascular inflammation in other parts of the body, not necessarily in kids, but in adults. And so that's one of the possibilities is that it's some sort of manifestation of inflammation of blood vessels in the toes. I can guess that you're going to say we don't have a lot of information here. We certainly don't have a lot of information about about the treatment of adults with COVID-19, but does the treatment for children with COVID-19 differ in any way? Well, so the vast majority of children who have COVID-19 don't need any treatment at all. So I think that's the most important first message. Because children are less likely to be very sick, 
usually the right treatment for children is what we call supportive care, basically making sure that they stay hydrated. If they have a fever, you can make them comfortable by treating the fever. Watch, be careful, and eventually they get better just in, in a few days. One of the concerns we've heard about is the risk that pregnant women infected with COVID-19 might pass it on to their unborn children. What do we know about that risk? There is some suggestive evidence that very rarely that may happen, but there is nothing conclusive to date. So I think that if it does happen, it's probably very, very rare. Um, so certainly places like New York City, where there was a huge outbreak, many pregnant women were infected and you know there was not an associated huge increase in newborn babies who were infected. There were some original case reports that came out of China that suggested antibodies that were detected in the baby suggested that in utero, when the baby was basically still in the uterus, the baby may have been exposed to the virus. There is research going into trying to understand, is the baby infected before being born or immediately after being born? Because it can sometimes be very difficult to differentiate these two things. But what we have seen in all of these cases is, in fact, that the babies, even though they are infected, seem to do very well. So they have evidence of being infected microbiologically for a few days, but they're not very sick, and then they get better. As we uh, start to look at the future, you know, we hope that, that schools will open up at some point in the near future. But, but in the meantime, many kids are feeling isolated right now. I think a lot of grown-ups are feeling that way. Uh, I've seen a lot of parents asking on social media about whether they should let kids play at a safe distance with neighbors or friends outside. I wanted to know your take. Well, I don't think it's just parents and, and kids who are feeling a little bit isolated. I think doctors are as well. <laughs> But I think what people should do now, what parents should do now, is to continue to maintain the physical distancing that's recommended by public health. The tricky thing with children is it's awfully hard to convince a, a toddler to stay two meters away from another toddler. Parents need to be very cautious in terms of putting themselves and children in situations where it may not be easy to maintain the, the desirable physical distancing. Um, going back to schools, what, what kinds of protection do you think teachers will need? Do you think that there's going to be a new normal uh, in schools as a direct result of COVID-19? I do. I think that there's probably going to be a new normal in most aspects of society in the absence of either a vaccine or documentation of population level herd immunity I think we have to have a new normal. You know, some of the obvious things we will probably see in schools will be ongoing attention paid to distance. So we've seen this already in some other countries. Desks being further apart, big gatherings perhaps not happening. I think we all remember in grade school being on the gymnasium floor, completely squished together while we're listening to the principal talk about something. I think things like that will change. So there may also be changes in, in parts of school like recess or gym class. Do you see teachers wearing masks to school? I think it's possible. I don't know what will happen or what the recommendations will be. I think that, I mean, we're seeing different elements of society recommendations coming out that people within certain industries or in certain areas are recommended to wear masks. So I think it's possible that we, we see that. I don't know if you uh, like to bet, but when do you think we'll be seeing uh, schools reopening? If I had to bet, I would say 
in Ontario, where I'm based, I'd be very surprised if they reopened this academic year. I mean, we're in, in May now, and the school year in most places would typically be ending sometime this month or maybe in June. I would be very surprised if we in Ontario go back, go back to school this academic year. So if I had to bet, I would probably say next fall. Lots of great advice there. Dr. Sean Morris, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks very much, Brian. Dr. Sean Morris is a clinician scientist in the Division of Infectious Diseases at SickKids. He's also a scientist and principal investigator of Child Health Evaluative Sciences at SickKids Research Institute and the Center for Global Child Health. And if that isn't enough, Sean is cross-appointed to the Dalalana School of Public Health. Here's your dose of smart advice. Fortunately, the vast majority of children with COVID-19 have either no symptoms or very mild symptoms and require little more than supportive treatments like acetaminophen or Tylenol for fever and aches and pains. Even better, there's some evidence that kids don't spread COVID-19 around to the same extent that they would the flu or other common respiratory viruses. While the data isn't conclusive, that does give us some reassurance that opening up schools will not cause the coronavirus to spread in an out-of-control fashion. And from what we've seen so far, when pregnant women get infected with COVID-19, the virus does not seem to cause serious effects on their unborn children. Visit cbc.ca slash whitecoat for more in-depth coverage of kids and COVID-19. We'll have a story featuring Dr. Morris posted there shortly. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about the coronavirus, let us know what they are and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC Whitecoat. Remember to use the hashtag TheDoseCBC. I also wanted to let you know that our team is working on a show about the impact of COVID-19 on Canadians' mental health. If you have a story to share about how you're coping or struggling, email us. Better yet, record yourself on your smartphone and send us a short one- or two-minute audio clip that we might use on the show. You can find out more on our website, cbc.ca slash whitecoat. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're being featured on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, you can rate and review us there. This episode of The Dose was produced by Ariane Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me, with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for technical support. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.